Welcome to the Mind Your Autistic Brain talk show, the talk show for late identified autistics, where each week you will hear the autism journey of another late identified person, including the hardest part, the best part, and insights they share just for you. So you know you are not alone on this journey, my friend. Find your person and community here each week. And don't miss these special editions of Creator Spotlight and Hot Topic with your hostess with the mostest, Social Audi. That's me, Carol Jean. Let's get started. Welcome to Mind Your Autistic Brain, the talk show for late identified autistics, where each week I have a conversation with another late identified autistic. Today, throw on the brakes, we're doing something different. I have an amazing guest and someone I'm really excited to share with you today. Her, so, her name is Sophie Manovich. She is getting her PsyD in psychology and clinical psychology at the University of LaSalle, and she is a researcher. And she's just not any researcher. She is a non-autistic researcher who is listening to the autistic voice, who is researching what we want to know. So I've had a couple conversations with Sophie and I was like, okay, she showed up in my inbox asking me about the study and, you know, joining and doing some input. I'm like, mm, let me ask you a couple questions first. <laughs> and Sophie replied to all my questions and was just like, I'm doing this, this, and this. This is why I'm doing this, this, and this. And I thought, you're my kind of person. I really want to talk to you and get to know you. So we had another meeting and, and got to know each other and I was so impressed. I was so blown away, not just by her brain, but by her heart. Sophie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. So Sophie, tell us, share with everybody in the Mind Your Arts Spring community what your current research project is, how it started, and sort of how is it that you ended up looking at and into autism research from the autistic perspective, and you're not autistic. How does this happen, Sophie? I know, it's a little wild, huh? Um, well, I have to say, I I wanna say I'm a, I'm a clinician first, a researcher second. Um, the study that I'm currently doing is part of my dissertation, um, but research is important to me. I've been supporting research studies since I was an undergraduate um, in college. Um, and I worked on different studies that were not from the autistic perspective, um, but other researchers wanted to do it and I wanted to be there to learn. Um, but it kind of, there were a number of different experiences that drove me to think, hmm, maybe, maybe there's another way. Um, and it kind of all started, I think, in high school where I first learned about autism and I had no really idea what it was. So I started looking it up and I started listening to people's stories. And just seeing first person accounts of what it's like to be autistic was really interesting to me. It was a brand new perspective. Um, and I really, I kind of just connected with it. I, I thought, wow, this is really cool. I wanna get to know these people a little better. Um, and as I did all kinds of support for research, like being a research assistant, I realized, hmm, I'm getting to know people better, but I'm not, not doing things from their perspective. And I kind of went back to that. I wanna hear their stories. I wanna hear why why things are going the way they're going. Why are autistic people seeking the things that they're seeking? 
Um, so there was um, this awesome hashtag that came out of NSAR in 2018. I think it was called Aut NSAR, uh, where autistic people shared what they wanted from research. Um, and I'd already been kind of listening for autistic voices to see, and it, there are autistic researchers out there, obviously. Um, so I've been kind of tuning in to see what are people interested in, because I was trying to think, what am I going to do for my dissertation? How can I make my research make sense um, for the community that I actually care about? So I looked at the hashtag and I wrote down pretty much every single response from what people wanted to see from research. And then I went through it and I, I was like, okay, so what, what's also interesting to me? Um, and so what I ended up coming up with was camouflaging and quality of life. Um, nobody had looked at it before to see what the correlations were. There's a few studies out there looking at anxiety and depression as it relates to camouflaging, but nobody was doing overall quality of life. And autistic people are talking about their quality of life a lot and how it could be better for the most part <laughs> in a lot of ways, how society could be supporting them a lot more. Um, so I really wanted to look at those things. Uh, and I wanted to look really from as much from the autistic perspective as possible. So I sought out measures that would really work with what autistic people wanted. And so the measures that I ended up choosing, um, they were validated with autistic stakeholders in mind. They were based off of constructs that autistic people talked about, came up with and was you know published in qualitative data. Um, so I was really excited to be using things that seemed really relevant to the autistic community. Yeah, that was my very long-winded answer. <laughs> no, that was perfect. And I do want to point out, Sophie uses the term camouflaging, which mm -hmm. I really like because I think it's, and because I, I, I specifically have a very different viewpoint when we're talking about masking, That's right. because there's societal masking. Mm -hmm. And it is something that we as autistics have employed either consciously or subconsciously as a survival mechanism mm -hmm. in societal norms. But I find that camouflaging, the term camouflaging truly speaks more to what it is in the autistic world, in our world, versus just a masking. Because I feel like Camouflaging really more visually speaks to, and we are visual thinkers, so many of us, mm -hmm. that it's a blending in. It's mm -hmm. a don't don't stand out, don't get noticed kind of thing. Um, where a mask can be, you know, all kinds of different things. It can be very subtle, it can be very bold, but camouflaging very much speaks to the intent of what we do as autistics, and that is to try and blend in in many situations. And, you know, sort of what you and I talked about is, from my perspective, from the unveiling method, is that the current clinical objective is that, okay, I'm going to help my, my patient who's autistic unmask. I'm going to help them pull off all these masks that they've been using and they're going to be fine. Hmm. I'm going to get back to who they are when in reality, the experience of that as an autistic person, especially as a late identified autistic person, is that we start to pull off these masks and we start to get a little more comfortable. We start to, you know, let some of the things that we normally camouflage or, or hide or reserve for our own private time out. And that gets a little more freeing and you feel a little bit more empowered and you don't feel quite as angsty. But then you get to this point after you've done a couple of those layers and you're just kind of like, well, I don't really know who the heck I am underneath there anymore. I've lost myself along the way because I've given away so much of who I am. And I think that your research is really interesting. And so, Sophie, I have a question about it. Okay. 
Okay, so from a research standpoint, normally, we're looking at the approach to what we term a deficit model. So quality of life is like, well, you know, how, what is the anxiety? What is the depression? What is the low quality of life that you have? And how does it correlate to your camouflaging in life? My question is, are you also looking at the opposite? Are you looking at how is the quality of life enhanced and enriched in how we utilize the tool of camouflaging in our life? Because if we're only looking at the deficit and we're not looking at, because that both exist, and we're not looking at also how does it help us in our quality of life? What, what are your thoughts on that, Sophie? I think that's such a good question and such a great point. Um, right now, my study is very exploratory because it hasn't really been done before. Um, so I'm just looking for correlations. And I want to see if I see that there are some aspects of camouflaging. So, for example, you know, camouflaging per the measure that I'm using, at least, it's broken down into several different things. So including masking, actually, um, and compensation and assimilation. And so I'm looking to see are any of those correlated to parts of quality of life? And that's also broken down by things like meaning and purpose, general life satisfaction and affect. So if I see, yeah, that some aspects of camouflaging are helping people and they're increasing their quality of life. I think that that's brilliant data to have. Um, I think I've learned so much from you really in that extra step of it's not just about, you know, it's good or it's bad. You take the mask off, you put it on. It's, it's about what's left, finding out who you are, and also using some of these strategies to your advantage if you can. But first, like you told me, you have to know yourself, really. Um, and I think that's that's kind of like at the essence of it all, right? If you if you know yourself, you're able to then figure out how can you use these strategies to help yourself. And I hope that maybe this will inform that a little bit. Um, maybe it will help people realize that certain strategies are really not serving them or not serving them in the way that they hope that they would serve them. Um, and I'm hoping that this is just kind of like the first step in helping people, maybe at least from a minute academic standpoint, I know autistic people are already doing this, already having these discussions. What I'm doing is not revolutionary or new necessarily for the discourse that autistic people have been having all along. Um, but I hope that it, it provides some sort of guide, knowledge, something that will help people more broadly understand what's helping, what's hurting, what's not doing either. What I love, Sophie, is that, yes, we absolutely are having this conversation in the autistic community on the regular. This is a daily conversation mm -hmm. somewhere in the autistic, autistic community. However, it has not been part of the daily or regular conversation in the research world. Mm -hmm. And what I love, Sophie, and what really impressed me most about you is that you acknowledge that you are doing something that hasn't been done even though it's happening in the autistic community, that that qualitative and quantitative data hasn't been collected and utilized in a way that is serving the autistic community from a research perspective. And that is what you are, are seeking to do. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, by taking that step in that initiative that you are doing, that is raising the awareness 
that is shifting the broken and very narrow, exceptionally narrow narrative that is happening in the research world. And there is a shift because there are more and more autistic researchers than there ever have been before. And I love that you are taking that approach and that you're listening. And I think something, if you're willing to share it, is sort of why you have such great empathy and understanding of what it's like to be different and to be perceived differently so that you relate very much to how so many of us express when we're telling you we really don't feel like we fit in. We are definitely camouflaging. We definitely utilize these tools to survive. So what's kind of your background and, and how have you used that and sort of how did you get, how did that bring you to this particular topic? Yeah. So I'm an immigrant. I was born in Russia. Um, I moved to America when I was eight years old. So had a bit of a culture shock there. I definitely knew what it was like the person who literally didn't speak the language, was totally an outsider. Um, and I think a lot of autistic people can relate to that and I can relate to them because of that. Um, I'm also queer, so I kind of know what it's like to not be, you know, heteronormative and um, kind of fit into that part of society. Um, I think that a lot of the times people kind of read me as straight, people read me as American, so I have a lot of privilege. I'm also white. I, you know, the way that I present, usually, People just see me as, oh, you know, just another, you know, white American woman. Um, so I can enter certain spaces in ways that some autistic people can and some autistic people can't. And it really varies depending on the space and the person. Um, but there are some places that I, I stand out like a sore thumb. <laughs> there are uh, some places where I am way too queer for the space. There's things, you know, I will say something and people are like, wait, what? Um, there's, and it also kind of gives me this perspective of there's more than one way to be. Um, there's more than one way to see things. Um, and just, you know, coming from Russia to America, I was able to see like, oh, there's a lot of things in common here, but not everything. A lot of the ways that I did things in Russia would be probably weird in America or, you know, it's just, it's not what we do here. And so I kind of had to change parts of myself um, to adapt to that. And I think kind of going through that and then learning also about um, advocacy for the queer community and, you know, all the work that people have done over the years to make sure that queer people are seen as equal and that work is still very much going on. I think that that really paralleled the struggles that um, people in the disability community have been having and all the advocacy that they've done um, and obviously autistic people within that community have been doing, are doing. Um, it is definitely not the same. I will never know what it's like um, to be autistic, but I think just knowing kind of the struggle of fitting in with mainstream society, I can relate to that a little bit. I think that that, I just, I wanted you to share because I wanted people to know that you come from a place of understanding. You come from a place of having experienced being different, mm -hmm. that you can truly relate to what it's like to not feel like you fit in mm -hmm. <laughs> and to really need that. So one of the other things I really would like to talk to you about, Sophie, and I think that this was a really important thing 
for everyone in the autistic community because we talk about this constantly. And that is about research ethics. And I know that you have very strong, <laughs> strong views on this, and I, I really appreciate them. Um, one of those things is that, you know, as researchers, any, as scientists, we go into a research project with a, with a working hypothesis. I think this is what this correlates to this. And I sort of have predictive behavior that this might be the outcome, but I'm also open to the fact that it might be something totally different from my working hypothesis. So only way to know that is to collect the data. But we have to be really intentional and we have to be very ethical in how we go about before we ever start. If I ask this question and I get this answer, what happens to the information? When I get the answer, whether it's something I want or expect or don't want or don't expect, what what will having this information serve? And what opportunities for productive and use of service does it have? And what is the detriment to knowing this? What, is, what harm could be done by having this particular data set and information? Because mm -hmm. I think that that, it's being responsible researchers. We have to ask ourselves that. I ask myself that every day before I ever start anything. You know, in the project that I have, in the research project that I've got going now, it's, I asked a lot of that question. I asked a lot of, I really had to dig deep, not just on a personal level, you know, on a personal core values and ethics, but I had to ask for the, at, at large, because I, I have blind spots. I'm human. I can miss something that somebody else could see. So I didn't just rely on my own internal value system and ethics. I had to ask. I had to say, okay, I'm going to make sure I'm checking myself and make sure that, that I'm not missing something before I ever start this. If I get some answers, could these potentially be harmful or, or be of disservice to my community? So what is your, your approach and your thinking on this, Sophie? Yeah, I've definitely had that fear a little bit. Right now, my hypothesis is probably people who have more camouflaging behaviors are going to have a lower quality of life. I am very open to the possibility that I am completely wrong. And I think that there's a lot more nuance to it than that, even if I'm partially right. Um, I did have the fear that what if I learn that tons of camouflaging means the greatest possi possible quality of life ever? What would that mean? <laughs> I uh, I think it's important to publish data kind of like no matter what you found because it's, you know, the, the study has been done for a reason. And I think in my case, the reason was that autistic people wanted the study to be done. So I, I owe it to, I think my participants um, who put a lot of effort into answering these questions truthfully. I think I owe it to them to publish, but I think like you said, I also owe it to people to think critically about what does this mean? So it's gonna require, I think, a lot of critical thinking and a lot of going back and forth, like what came first, what does this mean? I think, you know, in the case that I do find out that yes, you know, 
lots of masking and camouflaging means great quality of life. I think I need to see the nuance in that. And I need to see, okay, so does that mean that from the perspective of getting by every day, even if there are costs to it, if if folks are getting by every day and they are um, they're having more benefit, you know, for example, at work, people are perceiving them as competent and ready to do things and giving them raises and they're masking to get those. Um, I think that that's something that's important to think about and that might mean for other autistic people that, you know, I, yeah, maybe there are some environments where this is going to be so important for me to do. Um, and, um, you know, and it might increase my quality of life because I'm getting promotions and I'm getting job offers and things like that. And I think it's going to be important to look at the other end of that of, okay, but is there must be some cost to this? Is there a cost to this? Um, are, you know, I want to question like, are the people that are using those strategies, are those the people that maybe are more okay with their diagnosis or less okay with their diagnosis. And that's a question that I have. Um, so I'm curious about kind of the nuance. Um, and then I think no matter what, I'm gonna just have a lot of questions. I'm gonna have a lot of more follow-up questions. And I think when I do hopefully publish this, um, I'm gonna have a lot of those questions at the end of, okay, what else do we need to look at to get a fuller picture of this? This is just one piece of an under, a greater understanding of this. This isn't everything. Um, and this should be interpreted with a lot of caution because this is just a correlation. I'm not saying anything causes anything. Um, I'm just looking at this very generally. Um, and I think at the end of the day, there are gonna be autistic people that take on this work um, that are gonna be able to provide a lot more nuance than I ever can, even if I'm citing autistic researchers in my work the way I interpret it is going to have limitations just by nature of who I am as a person, no matter how hard I think about it. So I think when I write this up, I'm going to leave a lot of doors open for autistic people. Please chime in. Does this resonate? Please continue this work or do it completely differently. Um, and let's, let's figure this out together in a way that is going to help guide clinicians and researchers um, into doing work that, is really, is really just gonna go hand in hand with what autistic people want. Um, yeah, I think this is just such a drop in the bucket. <laughs> yes, but you know what? That bucket doesn't get filled up without a drop first. That whole bucket gets filled by nothing but accumulation of little drops. And for one, I am very thankful and very grateful that you are adding your drop to the bucket. It's one drop at a time that we will fill it. And it is through this, through communication, through Ubuntu, the African word you and I discussed, I shared with you. And that is, I am because we are. I cannot be my best self if you are not being your best self. And together, we as humanity become our best selves. One of the things that right now, today is April the 20th, and you and I had a conversation coming into this because there's a lot happening in the autism community right now, and it's a lot about perception. And if you 
had one thing that you would like to change about the perception. And even if your work leads to that, but just as a person, one person to another, from someone who is non-autistic to someone who is autistic, what is it that you would say to other researchers who are not autistic to help bring us together and let them see that there is something different? What is, how would you convey that? I would really ask other researchers to question their research ideas and ask themselves, why are you doing this? Is it because it's the way things have always been done? Is it because it's personally interesting to you? Um, and sometimes that's that's great, but there needs to be a little bit more than that. Um, I think it's important to question who this is really for. And if it's just for you as a neurotypical person or it's just for you and your neurotypical colleagues, I personally don't know if that's enough. I think it is so important to look to the autistic people who have been saying exactly what they want to see in research for so long. And they're saying this because that research doesn't exist yet. There are tons of opportunities to do incredible research in autism, and it requires, I think, listening to autistic people first. That's where it has to start. Everything else is great. Having your own unique ideas is wonderful. But if it didn't start with autistic people and it didn't benefit autistic people directly in the way that they want to be benefited, then I'm not sure who it's really for. Sophie, I think that that is probably the, the key, the crux of what we should all be asking ourselves when we agree as an autistic person to participate in a research project we have the due diligence to ask those same questions, not to just say, yeah, sure. You know, it's an autistic study. Let me contribute my autistic information and data to this. It's what am I, what am I contributing to? What is, what is the purpose and the person and the people behind this? Is it of service and benefit to me and my community? Is this of service to humanity at large in the sense that it is working to elevate understanding and to help us all become better at being us. Yeah, and I've had, I've had people question me about why I'm doing this study, ask for more information, and I think that's great. I'm always really happy to talk about it and to answer those questions. And some people have said, this is great, I'll participate. And some people said, that's not for me. And I'm really glad that people are making those informed choices and figuring out what is best for them. I think that's absolutely wonderful. And that's just wonderful, I think, advocacy on anybody's, you know, their self-advocacy to figure out what works for them and what they need. I do too. And I think that that's part of the, the process of, of the unveiling method is that we get back to really connecting with who we are, what our purpose is, and also how is it that we interconnect with the world around us? How does that serve us and how do we serve others? Because we are neurobiologically wired, we are chemically wired to be in connection with one another. And that doesn't mean that autistic people are wired in any other way. Then we also seek connection. It's just in a different way. Absolutely. We do not 
isolate because that is, you know, the only way we want to exist. We just happen to connect in different ways, but we connect. And I love that you are open and that you acknowledge that because we all have our own language. Each individual human has their own language of communication, spoken and unspoken. And the more that we can learn to better understand and communicate in that language, just of ourselves and of just learning the language of the person that we love and, you know, we like to hold hands with and hug and, and share, you know, our pillow with, that person too is the one that we also learn to speak their language, whether it's an autistic language or a non-autistic language. We all have to learn to communicate because we all seek that connection because we are not islands unto ourselves, much like the broken narrative that exists in the world about autistics. We do not want to live all by ourselves. <laughs> we like to be alone, but we do not want to live by ourselves without others in the world. Thank you for bringing this wonderful research to fruition, Sophie. Thank you for being a voice in the research community that is questioning and challenging the status quo. Thank you for joining me today, Sophie. Now tell people where they can get in touch with you. How can people who are interested in participating in your research find you and hook up with you? Well, if I haven't already emailed you because I've sent so many emails uh, recruiting, um, my email address, I will actually leave it with you probably to just put in the bio, um, but it's yep. my last name, S one at lasalle.edu. Um, if you email me there, I am more than happy to pass along the link to my dissertation. I'm more than happy to answer your questions, talk about any of this. Um, feel free to critique it. I've already had some really good feedback that I hope to incorporate um, in, you know, in the discussion portion of my um, article that I hope to publish. Um, because I think that there is a lot more that could have been done with this and a lot more that should be done with this in the future. Um, so any feedback that anybody has, I'm more than welcome. That is fantastic, Sophie. We appreciate that because there's so often, there's not an open line of communication. There's not a, a reciprocation and receiving of any kind of feedback from, from autistic people, especially when it's research about us. And I love that you are so incredibly open with that. And you, I can say personally from experience, if you ask Sophie a question, she's going to answer you and she's not going to just wait and answer you. She's going to answer you right then. She's really great about that. So, so don't feel like, you know, she's just, if she's really good about it. She really stands by her word. She's not just a talker. She's a walker. <laughs> We really appreciate it. So guys, if you would like to participate in Sophie's research and you would like to help contribute information to the correlation between quality of life and camouflaging, and that's going to be in all aspects of it. She's not just looking at the, the bad and the ugly. She's also looking at the good. She's looking at all the things that impact us and that are going to help us because the more we can have, the more we know, the more we can grow. And together we're going to do it. Boom, boom, too. Thanks so much for being here, Sophie. Guys, be sure you tune in next week for another episode of Mind Your Autistic Brain. And thanks for the surprise, huh? Thanks for being the surprise guest, Sophie. I really <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. 